Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and today we have a conversation between Amethyst J. Davis, founder of the Harvey World Herald, and Wendy C. Thomas, the founder and publisher of MLK 50, Justice Through Journalism, a nonprofit news organization in Memphis, Tennessee. This founder-to-founder conversation tackles the difficulties and doubts Black women face when it comes to funding and support for new startups. The Pivot Fund CEO, Tracy Powell, kicks off the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. This is a really interesting and anxiously anticipated conversation with two of my favorite people. I want to briefly introduce Wendy and Amethyst to you. Wendy and I have been friends where I, I can't even remember. I think it might have kind of knew each other through NABJ Wendy, and but we really got to know each other when I was a Knight Fellow and you were a Nemus Fellow, and we wanted to notes. I think that's when we really bonded, and it was when the first time I learned about MLK Fifty, and I was I just remember being so excited about it and excited for you. Uh, you know, Wendy is a veteran journalist, editor, and the founder of MLK Fifty Justice Through Journalism a nonprofit news organization that focuses on economic justice in Memphis, Tennessee. Wendy is known for her investigative reporting on issues such as housing segregation, poverty, and economic inequality, and has won numerous awards for her work, including the Ida B. Wells Award from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Scripps Howard Foundation's prestigious Ernie Powell Award for Human Interest Storytelling. In addition to her journalism work, Wendy is also a frequent speaker and lecturer on issues related to race, social justice, and the media. She has served as a fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University and has been a guest on num- a number of national news programs, including MSNBC's The Rachel Maddow Show and PBS News Hour. Amethyst J. Davis is a journalist and the founder of the Harvey World Herald, a community news outlet covering the city of Harvey, Illinois. She started the publication in 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The goal of providing local residents with accurate and trustworthy news about their community. As a resident of Harvey, Amethyst is deeply committed to covering the issues that matter most to her community, from local politics and government to education, public safety, and economic development. Through her work with the Harvey World Herald, Amethyst is working to create a more informed and engaged citizenry in Harvey and beyond. She's a graduate of Chicago State University, uh, where she earned a degree in communications. She has previously worked as a freelance writer for various publications and as a communication specialist for Chicago-based nonprofits. So once again, I want to thank both of you for joining us. I wanted to take just a couple of minutes to talk to Wendy, and then I will I will... I will graciously leave to give y'all a chance to hear directly from both Amethyst and Wendy. So, Wendy, I want to start by, you know, I talked about we really got bonded during our fellowship time when I first learned about MLK 50. And I remember you being reluctant when we talked about MLK 50. You were like, Tracy, I'm not trying to manage anybody. I'm not trying to raise money. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it took for you to kind of embrace the moniker of publisher owner. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for this opportunity. It, it is a delight to be with y'all here today. When I launched MLK 50, I really kind of envisioned it as like a one-year project in the lead up to the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. 
And we launched with no money. I would not recommend that to anybody. And it was like a struggle and it was hard. And I was living off credit cards and, you know, just really wasn't completely sure I was going to be able to make a go of this. And then I think, and so my idea was after the one year, give myself an out, sunset MLK 50 and go find a job in a newsroom doing something. My like backup backup plan was uh, to go work for the public utility in their communications department because I knew people in that department and figured, you know, they knew my work enough to give me a give me a job so I could keep the lights on, have some health insurance. But then we got initial funding from uh, the Servna Foundation, which doesn't even typically fund journalism, uh, nonprofit newsrooms. They fund a couple, but not a lot. Uh, and that gave me the hope that, okay, maybe we could continue this. And then there were other funders that that followed followed after that. So what, what, what was the real tipping point that when you made your transition to becoming publisher? And then I guess, you know, looking back, when you look back to where you started and where you're at now, all these awards, support from Ford, countless accolades, you're now seen as a leader and trailblazer in the space. Would you have accomplished any of this had it not been for kind of the transformational support that you received? from CERTNA through the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund, would you have been able to pull this off? Not a chance. Not a chance. The CERTNA Foundation let us know that there were funders out there that would support this. The Racial Equity and Journalism Fund at Borealis Philanthropy showed us that, that funders were recognizing that there needed to be a dedicated pool for publishers like ours, publishers of color, you know, serving their communities. And so that was like, okay, there's going to be some kind of long-term funding commitment to this. One piece of advice you gave me early on, Tracy, that I didn't mention earlier, was you told me that I could not be a journalist and a publisher at the same time. And I was like, I'm going to prove her wrong. And for a second, I managed both. In 2018, I was selected to be part of ProPublica's local reporting network. And so I spent 2019 and half of 2020 as part of that network. In 2019, we were able to investigate the debt collection practices of some nonprofit hospitals. And the outcome of that investigation led to a lot of policy and systemic change for the hospital. I think I'm most proud that the hospital ended up erasing about $12 million worth of debt for people that it had sued um, for unpaid hospital bills. But trying to be an investigative reporter, which is a more than full-time job, and when a news organization was absolutely unsustainable, I had a managing editor who told me very candidly that I was committing suicide by work. And I took that to heart and stepped back from the editorial side to focus on building the organization. Yep. And you did it. And now you are at that point where you are, you can be an investigative reporter and you've hired someone going to take up some of it. Not, not all of it, because as a founder, you can never stop being never. the founder. But that now you have some support around that to help you run the the, the operation. So that's yes. fantastic. So, so I'm glad we're here at this particular topic because Amethyst is right now reporter and publisher. And this is the reason I want the two of you to talk. And so with that, I'll log off and I will come, become part of the audience and listen in on this conversation between the two of you. Thank you so much for joining us. 
This conversation is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. The Knight Foundation has made a commitment to support the Pivot Fund's vital mission to fund BIPOC-led news organizations around the country. If you'd like to support the Pivot Fund, visit thepivotfund.org to donate today. Wendy Thomas, I I want to I want to first say thank you for the work that you're doing. Simply because, like, mom, I'm from the Midwest, right? But my mother's family is from Mississippi, and my dad's family is from Louisiana. So I know that the South is the rooted to the tuna, right? So it is it is understandable <laughs> that I feel like you know while Chicago as a city gets a lot of attention for the the entrepreneurial like news work being done here in you know the city in the area that the south between you know your work between Scalawag, I think about Mississippi Free Press, all these other folks, you know, I think the South is truly the vanguard um even in, in community journalism. So I I wanna first thank you for all that you're that you're doing. I wanted to pick your brain about what it was like for you emotionally that first year. Because I know where it's been, where I was at last year, and arguably one of the hardest years, I think, professionally, mentally, psychologically, of my life. But I wanted to sort of pick your brain um, and hoping that maybe I'm not alone about where you were that first year, emotionally, mentally. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Um, and I want to thank you for being the next generation of newsroom leaders. That's super important. And I think those of us in a different generation, me and, me and Trace, are very, very proud of people who are picking up the torch and are hoping that and y'all are able to learn from our mistakes. So emotionally that first year, I was a mess. Mm. Um, I cried not infrequently. I had multiple moments of doubt where I was like, what are you doing? Can you actually pull this off? I would wake up in the middle of the night and remember how much credit card debt I had, and it would send me into a panic. Like literally, my stomach would would turn, would be in knots. I had a therapist that I've been seeing for years. She really has kept me alive. I'm gonna be completely transparent about that. She allowed me to play on a sliding scale when I was making no money, so I was paying like thirty dollars a session, uh, which was probably about all I could afford. And I had people who believed in me. Tracy was one who was like, you could do this. It's, it's possible. If you could, if I could turn around my camera, you would see all these affirmations that I have posted on my wall. I'm a big believer in that. It, it works for me just to keep my mind right. Just a couple of them. Speak what you seek until you see what you've said. Mm. Speak what you seek until you see what you've said. If you haven't felt like quitting, your dreams aren't big enough. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seed or we were seeds. But this is a really good one. The temptation to quit will be greatest just before you succeed. And so over time, when I would get these feelings of extreme doubt, and then something would happen to give me some hope. Maybe somebody would make a donation or I'd have a good talk with another journalist founder at a different conference. And I'd be like, okay, that's the universe telling me I can hang on you know, for another day. But it was, it was not easy at all. Hmm. I'm, I'm listening to you speak and I'm doubly comforted and alarmed, right? <laughs> like I'm, 
I'm comforted because, you know, I drained and I'm no, I am notoriously private. And I told myself coming into this conversation, I would push myself to be, to bring more of that into the public space so that people watching know the reality of what it is mm-hmm. to actually try to do this. I drained both of my savings accounts in all of my retirement. Oh my God. To do this. I had, I had, I mean, there was no way for me to, I was in New York City. I was, I was, I was, I was working as in administration at NYU, which is also my alma mater. And there was no way I automatically knew to do this work from the Big Apple. It just wasn't going to happen. Right. So I had to come back. And the only way that was going to work is if I expensed, you know, you know, my liquid savings. And so I'm, I'm, I am comforted, you know, oddly, because I know I'm not alone in having to do that. But I'm alarmed because why do we have to do that? Like, you know, you going into, you know, further into credit card debt, me at 24, draining what little I, of my, I had saved up from my little, you know, my, my, my middle, middle right. class salary. This, this is not, you know, okay. Like, and I think about the cats, like the white dudes who go into like venture capital meetings or whatever, and they just got a pitch and they get $10 million. Like, right. we got to starve, you know, and, and sort of use our pimp out our struggle just to be able to get $50,000, which is, I never thought I would say something like this, but that's actually not a lot of money in the it's grand not. scheme of what we need to do. It's not, it's not. So, so what was, cause I know you got the ProPublica fellowship at one mm-hmm. point. Can you talk mm-hmm. about what that sort of local national partnership was able to do for you and do for uh, MLK 50 as an organization. Yeah, I can. The, uh, well, I want to go back to something you said just a second ago about, you know, white men getting these great, you know, these large sums of money to start up. I can't tell you how many funding cohorts I've been in and I have to sit and listen to the founders of newsrooms that started with $10 million from a single donor or a million dollars from a single donor with a commitment to raise a million each year and how frustrating it is to get the exact same advice about fundraising to someone like me mm. who lives in Memphis in a low wealth community who does not have those networks of wealth. The same advice to me and to a Texas Tribune who I really admire or a ProPublica who I really admire or other newsrooms that started with seed capital. You know, yeah. that's because of white supremacy from racism, the humps that the hoops rather that funders often make us go through. I can yeah. remember and I won't name the funder that was funding ProPublica, and we were also asking them for the, a grant, and they said, they made it seem like we were double dipping. And I'm like, I haven't had health benefits, do you know what I mean, in years, and like, you're going to hassle me about giving us another 100000 Anyway, that was maddening. That was maddening. The ProPublica partnership was critical because, for one, they paid me, a, it wasn't a salary because I wasn't on anybody's payroll, but they paid me a certain amount every month. So any money we raised, I could put it to the rest of the operation, paying other journalists, that sort of thing. And they just had resources that I don't know that we'll ever have. So entire data teams who can scrape websites, collect data, when they recognize anomalies in the data, write the scripts to, to backfill. I can't even like explain well everything that they were doing. They had things like LexisNexis, which 
we still can't afford. So I could run background mm. checks on people and find, if I saw somebody in court, but then I couldn't figure out their latest address or a phone number, I could LexisNexis and get all that information. And so it made the reporting a lot easier. And I was working with some of the most talented journalists, I can say, in the country. And my game, my reporting game became so much stronger just from having that interaction. And I've, I've worked with some great people, never people the caliber of that. And so working with them, producing content that was good, winning um, awards, although we don't really do it for the awards, but being able to change policy gave me some of the confidence that I needed. So when I talked to funders to be like, oh, you'd be crazy not to fund us. Like mm, that would be yeah. a mistake. Yeah. It would be a mistake on your part not to do that. But it took me a long time to get that level of confidence. Yeah. And what was, because I, I think I read somewhere recently, you, you know, feel like you finally got the job you always wanted. Um, Tracy, Somewhat, and you yeah. Sort of, yeah, sort of alluded to some of this, but how did you, because I've been trying to figure out, you know, and we're like a year and a half old at this point. Um, and I'm trying to figure out where I actually see myself in the long run with this. Do I want to be a reporter? Do I want to, you know, be an editor? Do I want to, you know, be, do I want to work on in business and just focus on, you know, making sure we're strong financially? How did you determine, you know, what your role was going to be here? And then what are some tangible keyword, tangible ways, um, or, 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 you know, what's some tangible advice for other people to be able to sort of figure out where they fit in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. Uh, so to your question, what's the point you were making about, you know, do you become kind of solely an editor? Uh, do you focus on the reporting? Do you focus on the business? I would ask you to ask yourself, what part of the work gives you joy? What part gives you joy? And then you need to figure out a path to that, period, full stop. Now, your path may take you a circuitous route, and you may have to focus more on the business now. You may have to do more editing, but your goal should be in five years and six years, this is what I want to be doing. And then everything needs to be in service um, of that. My goal is to replace me. Mm. I, I, to me, success looks like, well, it looks like a sev several different things and some of which have already happened. It looks like me being able to catch COVID in Italy while speaking at a journalism conference and my team runs everything. I don't have to be there. That's success to me, did that, right? Did that happen? Well, you're not there. No, I did catch COVID oh, at a journalism oh, wow. conference and was stuck over there for like 17 days. But my team kept things going. That is success for you to not be there. And your team knows their roles and knows what to do. I am actively looking now for the person who can be like our publisher, right? I think replacing me might be two people. I think you might need somebody really strong on the editorial side and then someone else with fundraising business experience, but it's not going to be me. Neither of those are going to be me. I want to mm -hmm. go back to being a full-time reporter because that's the part of the work that gives me joy. You know, I think I have on one of these post-it notes, I'm a big post-it note person, um, to go back to reporting by... Uh, June 2024. Uh, that mm -hmm. will be easier um, with the hires that uh, Tracy mentioned. So I just hired a chief strategy officer who was a founder of City Bureau, who was amazing. Uh, we hired a development director, uh, Lupita Pera, who was so organized. And they're going to be able to take some of this business side stuff away from me because that does not give me joy. 
Yeah. Today I was updating spreadsheets and budgets and calculations. I can do it. I become decent at it. It does not give me joy. Bingo. See, same. I, I feel the exact same way. No, I, my, if and when we get in a position, because I'm going to speak it into the ether. When, so going, when, 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 when we get into the position to bring on someone full time, I really would like to hire a full time director of business development and revenue. A lot of the work I did in higher ed was around our division was under the comptroller. So numbers eventually came my way. I was doing like financial, a lot of financial aid work with a lot of everybody else's job mixed in there is, is what I tell people. And I can, I can do the spreadsheets too. And I can, you know, pound the numbers, but good God, like, no, you, I, I feel it. No, I, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Yeah. That. Um, you know, you asked about tangible advice. Yeah, one mistake I made, I made lots of mistakes. We can talk later about all the mistakes I made, but was not investing more in the business side early on. Mm. I was hiring journalists because I'm a journalist. I've worked in four daily newsrooms, been managers in three of them. And so that's what I know how to do. I know how to set up a newsroom. I know how to run a newsroom. The business stuff kind of, you know, we got really, well, I'm not going to say lucky because we were prepared and it's been demonstrated we could do the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Our development director, our first full-time development director, I hired in February. The chief strategy officer, I hired. Of this year? Of this year? Of this year. This year. Of this year. So we were able to get the Ford Foundation grant based on relationships that I've been working on for years. I guess that would be another piece of tangible advice is that to me, when a funder says no, it just means not now. Mm. That's it. There have been multiple funders flat out told me, no, you're not the kind of organization we would support. Then we produced the investigation on debt collection with hospitals. We were able to, you know, publish stories about the results we had. And they're calling me saying, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, okay, all right. I was the same journalist before we yep. produced this investigation. But yep. now you want to, okay, it's, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Because yep. uh, the check's still cash. And that was the important thing. So I think not getting discouraged by no's mm. is very important. Building relationships with funders, super important. Uh, the Ford Foundation grant that we received was the outgrowth of a relationship that I, uh, I got an introduction. A black woman introduced me to Parach today, who was then the program officer at Ford. And I've been working on that relationship since 2018. And we just got awarded that money. Uh, and we're able to announce it in January of this year. So we're talking about four or five years mm. of sending updates. And if they're at a conference, making sure I say hi, or letting them know I'm going to be there. And do they have time for coffee? And when they say no, don't take it personal. And yeah. uh, for I actually left the foundation. And then Lolly Wabuian came in and she was able to connect us with the build grant, which is $2 million dollars. Over four years, uh, over five years. You know, I, 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 it's a long game. Like it it's a, a it's a long game. But I also feel like for black publishers, it is an even longer game. Like I yeah. feel like, I mean, I feel like for everybody, it's a long game. But you know, for us, it's like you know, it it would be like five years, right? And then like a long game. So the white dude from earlier is like six months. <laughs> Right. It's right. just not the same. Like, I, I, I'm not knocking what you just said. Like, I, I totally think it's valid. But I'm, I'm also sitting with 
my deep frustration knowing that, I mean, the playing field is still not level. Like, right. yeah, I, I think one of the things that sort of we've, I struggled with in trying to engage funders is in Chicago, we have a lot of philanthropic organizations right here. Some of them will not fund anything outside of Chicago. Now, Harvey is in the South suburbs. We're less than five minutes from city proper. You know, we, we serve, a, Harvey Road Herald, we serve a community of about 20,000 people, largely Black, Latino, and a growing Indian population. Third of the people live at or below the poverty line. People still in catalytic converters just to be able to get groceries because they sell them. Um, you know, and to be a stone's throw away and to have something to be effectively told that something is arbitrary as your zip code locks you out from transformational money. When we see that they have it, it's beyond frustrating. Like the, the I feel like you, know, you talked about when you get told no, it just means not now. And, you know, for the Harvey World Herald, in some instances, this no has been like, never and i and i really sit with that often and, and get even more frustrated granted i will say for what it is worth funders are now starting to reach out to the Harvey world herald but i think it's because it's i think it actually is because there are people in chicago newsrooms that are bringing the Harvey world herald into spaces that they know we are not in Mm-hmm. I think that's also been, you know, I think that has been helpful just to be able to, especially when I'm tied up in so much stuff, that that has been helpful trying to just get our, you know, you know, feet in the door, if you will. And then at that point, you know, the work is on me, right? You know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you kind of like, you already defined sustainability and I wanted to talk about that, but I also wanted to sort of ask you about your support proposition. Like when you went into these conversations with funders, mm-hmm. how did you make the case for MLK 50 Memphis? Like, what was it that you gave them to say, like, look, you know, you, and you kind of alluded to this with these investigations, but I mean, still like on the whole, like what's, what's, what is the, the MLK 50 Memphis support proposition for funders? Yeah. I mean, I really, you know, what you said about funders not being willing to go outside of Chicago and you can see all the money that they're sitting on and how, how maddening that is. Uh, in Memphis, we have, I wouldn't call her. It's not quite similar, but at an early retreat we had, people were putting post-its up on this big board about things they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And one of our contributors at the time wrote down that they, we, we were going to scare people who needed to be scared. So really this fighting against the, the status quo and the, the power structure here in Memphis. Memphis is two-thirds Black population. The poverty rate here is double the national average. Uh, and people here who profit from the status quo are not going to give us money to dismantle it. And that was an argument we made to national funders, that this community does not have enough money to support the kind of journalism that they need. And that communities that are suffering from disinvestment and, you know, extreme levels of poverty deserve quality journalism the most. They deserve it the most. And so we were able to make that case successfully to national funders in ways that that worked. Um, now, Memphis is a city of about maybe 630,000 people. And we did get a lot of pressure early on. People still ask me, so do you think there could be an MLK 50 in other cities? And I'm like, can you let me 
get this one straight before uh, I scale. And there's a lot of pressure to, to scale. Um, mm-hmm. And for you, I would think about how do you make the case to a national funder that they should invest seriously in a, in a community that is relatively small, right? Are there other South suburbs that you could be serving and you're, t- you're testing your case with, with Harvey, but mm-hmm. your expansion plans are to go to some other nearby cities and then your five-year goal is to be doing X, Y, Z. So that may be a way in. Another thing I was thinking about as you were talking about this, like what's your case for support is and that people are mentioning your name in rooms that you're not in, you might want to think about like who your ambassadors are and who you can recruit to to speak your name in spaces that you're not in yet. Whether that, I mean, funders ask me, and I'm sure they ask other founders as well, who else should I be looking at? Who else should I be talking to? And so if you have opportunities to apply for a travel grant, and go to the Lion Conference or go to Institute for Nonprofit News Conference and get in front of people and be in those conversations. I think that's that's valuable. So there's ambassadors, but there's also rainmakers. And so it's, impo- it's, it's important to try to find those. I was on a grantee call with, I think, either the Emerson Collective or the American Journalism Project. And they were giving this advice that really worked when you have millions of dollars in the bank, but didn't apply to us. And so, <laughs> you know, it comes time for the Q&A and I'm going to have a Q. They may not have an A, but I'm going to have a Q. And I said, uh, tell me how this, I should think about your strategies in a low wealth community that is majority black, where I don't have those connections to wealth. And Evan Smith with the tra- Texas Tribune said, I'm going to figure out how to help you crack that nut. And then he did. He connected us to our largest single donor who gave, I think, $75,000 last year, one person. And that person connected us to other people. So I had somebody who was established in this community, in this nonprofit news world, vouching for me. And that made a huge difference. Now, that didn't come until maybe three years in. So maybe it's not something you can do now, but you can start looking for those people and thinking who is an ambassador and who is a rainmaker and you want the person who can make it, make it rain. There actually is someone actually earlier, I want to say last year did advise that maybe we consider, you know, other supporting, supporting other South suburban communities. And, and there is a current effort between the Harvey world Herald and some other tiny publishers to create something akin to it is a, a South suburban news collective that we're working on that's going to allow us to collaborate on recording projects and cross-publish. But the biggest thing we're talking about is like joint fundraising and sort of bringing our heads together to support the entire South suburban media ecosystem. So I, I imagine, you know, that will be useful to go into those spaces with as well. Earlier, you had said you, you went to therapy in the first year. I did not want to I would be remiss if I did not ask this question because it's been on my mind for forever and a day. I remember like you, and I, it, it's wild how things come full circle. It was you in, I'm a member of Ida B. Wells Investigative Society. And mm-hmm. so they were doing a webinar, I want to say in the fall of 2020. And I ain't going to forget because I was at my granny's house, sitting in my computer in the front of the, you know, at the desk in front of the crib. I can't forget. But you were, 
in a webinar, I think for Ida B. Wells, and you were or some webinar. And, you know, you said that in pursuing MLK 50 Memphis and being a news entrepreneur, maybe it's INN, you, you said that you're not going to take vacations every time you turn around. Like every time you look up and you want to go dip and take, you know, your, your vacations four, five, six, eight, seven, eight, whatever, 15, 11 times a year, it's just not going to happen. Last year, after I had told myself for a few years I wanted to go to therapy, I started therapy. So I've been in therapy for about eight months now. And one of the things that has been really critical in my therapy is, you know, I went because I was like, I have a lot of stuff to get off my 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 chest. Right. But the most immediate was I work too much. Um, some of that being by circumstance, because I have to, because I have to take care of all of this. And some of that also being because I've, I rely upon work to 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 push away people. I'm not going to get too much into that, but you know, finding respite for me has been really big. So now I'm in my art classes, you know, on my little Pablo Picasso, Frida Kahlo, you know, um, trying to find respite because I have not taken a vacation, a real vacation, since December of 2019. Mm. When when did you finally? get to a point where you could actually take a real vacation. I'm tired. Yeah. So I think that would be another mistake I made. I'm harder on myself. I've learned through therapy than anyone is ever harder on me. And a lot of the overworking I do is the pressure I'm putting on myself. Nobody on my team says, you know, Wendy, you signed out of work today at, at six. And it, you probably should have put in another three hours. Nobody ever says that to me. And I took my first vacation, besides maybe like going to see a girlfriend for a weekend or something like that, maybe in, maybe three years in, mm. I regret that. I think I should have had more of a balance because the work is always going to be there. It is always going to be there. And if you fall over from exhaustion, that's not in service of your, of your organization. I think I really thought the the more I worked, the better the work would be. And it's, that's not true. It's actually kind of a diminishing return. So after you put in a good six, seven, eight hours, hours eight through 12 are not going to be your best work, right? And so I would definitely encourage you to take breaks, even if it's just every other Friday during the summer, you don't work. You know, you just give yourself that time um, away. I think that's really important. During the pandemic, I picked up tennis, and that's just a very different space to be in. I have to focus so hard to be able to try to hit the ball. Venus is a Yeah, it, It's ridiculous. It's not good. I'm not good. But it's just a different space for me. You know, I was raised playing piano, and so sometimes I'll try to go into that space. Mm -hmm. So I really like what you're saying about the art classes, because it takes your brain yeah. to a different place, and it you come back to the work fresher. So it actually is an investment in the work to take breaks. Now, I did not do that. That was a mistake. Mm. I'm actually glad to hear that because I've definitely been plotting. 2023, I've been plotting. I'm like, I got this, 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 this. I'm out. What if? What about before we sort of, I think we may be coming up a little bit on time soon. Um, you have 10 more minutes. 
And oh, wait, 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 wait. And I have a few questions for you too. Oh, so. yes, 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 yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. So, so I'll ask this question and then I'm going to be quiet and you can just power out with me. Community. Who are you? Cause I've asked a lot about you, but this word doesn't occur in a vacuum. I often find myself, find myself kind of frustrated that like, I would love to be in community with other people my age who are making the decisions I have to make or who have made the decisions I've made. And I'm, more and more becoming just aware that that's just not the case. The average 24-year-old is not trying to dip from New York City to come back to Harvey and do this. You know, they doing journalism. They they want to go work for national media and hope and pray that they allow them to, you know, uh, write about Black people and Black life, whatever. But so, so you know, but so most of the, my relationships with women community with, a lot of this has been intergenerational and I'm forever thankful for it um, in a very ageist world we live in. Who have you been in community with? Or really in those early days, who were you in community with? And I think in the early days, I did feel isolated because there weren't as many Black newsroom uh, funders, uh, not funders, founders. And I just wasn't as aware of the landscape as I am now. I think that's where going to conferences or even getting on webinars, that kind of thing really helps to familiarize yourself with some names. Mm-hmm. Dropping people's DMs, say, hey, I like what you're doing. Can I get 30 minutes to talk yeah. about your business strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Now that we know each other, you can say, hey, I want to talk to somebody at this publication. Who do you know? So I can make an introduction. Right? Are you yes, yes, yes. And now I'm in close relationship with Candace at, the, at Outlier Media, um, yes. Zen at Documented New York. Aaron Haynes at the 19th, Lauren Williams at Capital B. Capital B. Yep. And we have a text thread where we, we, were, we were chatting this morning where we go back and forth and share things that we don't have anyone else to talk about. You know, you mm-hmm. might have issues with staff. I, there's nobody on my team I can talk about that too, but I can, call, I can reach out to them and be like, these folks are making my butt itch. What do I do? Or just, just to vent, right? This funder is giving me the blues. And yeah. they're like, oh, yeah, I had the same issue. Maybe you should try to talk to so-and-so instead or whatever, help you strategize. What you're doing at your age is incredible. Incredible. And I don't want you to lose sight of that. What? Let's see. What is this? When I founded MLK 50 2017, I was 40, 45, 46 years old. So... I think there are advantages to having a longer career ahead of you in, in doing this. I'm trying to get out like I'd love to require second I can get Social Security. I'm like, I'm out. But to think of the impact that you can have in the career you have in front of you is so exciting. And so I think you should see that as uh, a gift. And as you do this more, I wouldn't expect you to have this confidence today, but as you do this more, You'll be like, yeah, I can, I can compete with these people. You know, I have valuable information and experiences to share and it may feel like it's more of a two way street, but until you get there, let those of us who have been there pour into you. Bet, bet, bet. So I had some questions for you. So tell me about some of the challenges you faced as you're, you've been building Harvey World and also as a, as a community news organization. Yeah, I actually didn't think one of the biggest challenges we faced, and I didn't really think recognize it because I had been away in New York for like six years, was 
how distrustful people mm. would be. Like it's, I, you know, we have a very, our community has a very fraught, to put it lightly, relationship with Chicago and white suburbanite media. I knew that. I did not think that there would be hesitancy um, from within the community about a, you know, a newsroom in our backyard owned and led by someone actually from the community who knows the culture. And so I've had to, I think early on a personal note, I was like really frustrated, you know, thinking like, you know, why, why am I getting this email asking me, how dare I get this email with you asking me if I work for the mayor? You really go sit up and stunt and ask me this, you know, or the, I got the emails, you know, do you work for the mayor and you get money from the city and, you know, and I had to, the light bulb for Harvey World Herald went off when I was 23. Finally went for it at 24. And so you're very, you are very young, right? And for people in your age range or even like twice your age, you are having to do the work of hold your own feelings, you know, and, you know, and hold the, the feeling of, feelings of the community just as much, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that was for me, I didn't see any of that coming. I saw none of the emotional work and the mental work of trying to validate the community and the harm that the media, media broadly speaking, has done, you know, validate the sort of, I think, a trauma from that comes from living and growing up in a community with, I mean, that is a shorthand for political corruption um, and just being distrustful of people such that you think they got agendas, that they're hiding stuff from you, that they want something from you and it's just being nice to you to figure out how to catch you slipping before they said that, you know, come up on you. I don't think people often talk about like the the emotional work that has to go into doing this type of work. I feel like journalists and media, we kind of like walk around like robots or think we're supposed to be robots. And I think part of this is too this, you know, I, I, I often wonder to what extent the the idea around objectivity, to what a degree that robs us of our humanity in trying to do this work. Nobody told me that, I would have to do that. 20, 20, 24. Nobody told me I was going to be having to actually do that type of work for, in a, you know, at the time it was just me last year. So one 24 year old, 25 year old having to do that emotional work for and in full view of 20,000 plus people by myself. No one told me about this. And I think that was the biggest challenge actually trying to see you know, my humanity and validate my feelings just as much as of those in the community. And I wish people had said something about that beforehand. I mean, you're single-handedly trying to undo generations of mistreatment by legacy media, you know. And I think often what I've found when I go out in the community, I can tell somebody, here's our site and here's the website and we're a digital outlet. I'll get done with the interview and they're like, when is it going to be on the news? And I'm like, this is, this, yes, yes, this is the, yes, yes, all of this. Yes. yes. Like, so we're not, we're not legit. Like, we're not, they, they've done so much harm and, you know, and, and, and we're here, right? Mm-hmm. And you still, we still got to prove ourselves and, and they have this entire track record right. of harm and institutional violence in the community and you still legitimize them. Yes. All of this. Yes. Yes. Don't take it personal at all, which I think would be harder for me to do if I were 
younger, but this, you know, I, I have to remind myself, this is what I've chosen. You know what I mean? I've chosen to work in this community and the mission you're on is admirable, you know, and I don't, I don't, I think it's an opportunity to think really critically about how you tell the community what you're doing and what your purpose is. And it's never like something you're going to be able to check off of a to-do list, you know, earn the trust of the community. It's something you have to grow, but I think you can demonstrate it, you know, and over time, people will trust you even when they still don't trust the Tribune or Sun-Times or the broadcast outlets. So kind of segueing from that, so how do you think Harvey World is different from other local news sources? Because it seems like that's a distinction that is important for you to make. Yes. So, I mean, how we are different, there's two ways to look at this. How we're different from that which is around us is that I, I use this language that we are built by, for, and with the community. There's a level of intention that we have to see Harvey residents, not to save the community, not to be a voice for the voiceless, because I think that everybody has a voice. The media just don't listen because we hard hit. You know, we we pass the mic to people who, if anything, they've been screaming for generations on end. We just we've just chose to ignore them. I think that is a level of validation that we have for this particular community that you're not going to get from the cats you you know mentioned and 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 you know around us, right? But I also think that we are not so different from you know, the people I've been in community with for the past, you know, year and a half, two years, right? There are, I always say that there are Harveys everywhere. Mm. All over, there are Harveys all over America. There are Harvey World Heralds all over America. It's Amethyst Davis is all over America. I'll probably meet my doppelganger one of these days, mm-hmm. right? I'm looking at the, like the, the, the attendees right now. If this is the crystal good, I think it is. Crystal, Crystal's been holding down Black Absolutely. Appalachia, right? The Black Rock God, the West Virginian you know, traversing the entire state in her car to hand out newspapers. Right. I think about Nancy Flores and Austin Vita, right? I think about Mark Tyler, Atlanta City Folk. Like, with the, the Harvey World here, I think one of the things I've actually been taken aback by the past few years is the attention and attraction to the Harvey World Herald. Because in my head, you know, from where I sit, we're not actually so different from many other organizations and people across the country who are trying, you know, we, I mean, I'm not going to say we got lucky because I'm not going to sit up here and, and, and down the sacrifices of many right. that I made to, to, to get just to here, to be able to have in 2023, a freelance staff. But I mean, there are Harvey's all over America. There are Harvey World Heralds all over America. And I wish people, I wish people knew that. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're very different than how we treat the community from uh, we're very different than like a lot of the Chicago media outlets around here. But in the grand scheme of things, we're not so different. And I wish people would have a greater appreciation for community media and stop seeing, you know, these or these newsrooms as a stepping stone. Right. That you cut your teeth here and then you go elsewhere because the community off, you know, ultimately is that who suffers. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, we have three questions and maybe we could limit your answer to a minute each for them because we have about seven minutes left. 
So the first question was, how do you even get in the door with funders when you don't have any network? And I know you kind of touched on this, but if you could expand a little bit. Yeah, I think you have to go where the funders are. And that often means conferences. I think that's how we got connected. And if you can't, don't have the finances to get to a conference, often they offer travel scholarships. Take advantage of all that. Even if they say it's $500, be like, I need $750. Can y'all spring that? And, you know, use the connections you have to get what you want. Mm. Great. Next one is one of the things you mentioned was you regretted not launching with funding. That, that was for Wendy. For anyone who is thinking about launching a new startup, how do they put themselves in front of run funders to make a pitch? Yeah, I think that's that's tricky, right? Because I feel like, I mean, just frankly, white people get funded for ideas. And Black people and people of color have to be funded by what we've already done. So that means struggling. I remember I had a funder tell us uh, that it's now a curtain funder, but wasn't at the time. Well, maybe like in a year or two, y'all might be ready for some support. And I said, we won't be here in a year or two. So the time to support is is now. We're making a lot of personal sacrifices. So support now. I, it's not easy. It's not easy. But that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. And then I'm going to ask the last question. We still have five minutes. So if anybody wants to put any more questions in the chat or in the Q&A feature, now's your time. But the other one was, how does one publisher transition when the time comes to replace yourself? So Wendy, how how are you doing that? Not fast enough. I think it's like scouting about for, I mean, I've I've been looking around for at least a year now scouting about for people I think that would be interested in doing this work and living in Memphis and doing it. I think it's expanding the idea of who can do this work, right? So I don't need a a journalist necessarily to be the executive director. I need someone who knows how to run a nonprofit organization. Are there people who can be trained up in the next few years to do this kind of role? Maybe they're not ready today, but if we hired them in some a little more junior role, could we give them the support they need to get there? I think, and I think honestly, when I make that transition, I think I'm going to have to leave MLK 50 for a little while. Maybe go do a fellowship somewhere, teach somewhere, uh, and let the people who are the new leadership have a chance to cement their roles. So it won't be Wendy's organization, which I think is a, a big issue you have with founder led organizations. And I want the people who replace me, um, to not have to work under my shadow. And I come back as an employee. That's, that's the plan. Mm. very very thoughtful approach to that and i will i will hand things over to tracy but before i do several people put kind things in the chat about you guys which i will email to you afterwards and i did want to highlight one um that i feel like is really relevant these are all excellent lessons positive and negative from the these path breakers i love that term the funding game is indeed not a level playing field to fix it. Media entrepreneurs will have to learn fast, but funders also need to change too. That's, that's like one thing. And, one yeah, thing in response to that, founders and newsroom leaders, Black ones who are mm-hmm. in conversation with funders or are already getting money, we're telling them that, right? We're telling them you need to fund us earlier and after with more money and multi-year grants. So please know that we're behind the scenes trying to make Amethyst, your road easier and other publishers mm-hmm. of colors, their road easier. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do. Thank you. And I will pass things back to Tracy. 
Thank you so much. This has been a really terrific conversation. I feel like the work that I and others have been doing for so many years, yeah, we're, we've been able to chip away a little, a little bit, been able to open a few doors for people like Wendy and Amethyst and launch the pivot fund because I really needed to take the handcuffs off and really try to open more doors for more people. What stands out to me from this conversation is there are hundreds of MLK 50s across this country. There are hundreds of Wendy Thomases across this country. There are hundreds of Harvey World Heralds across this country and hundreds of Amethyst Davises across this country. What we need to do as funders is support them. And we need to recognize them and the work that they do. And as long as we have our eye off the ball, replicating a system that already exists, one that does not work, one that is, has proven itself as a failure, as one that fails communities across this country, as long as we continue to try to remake that, we won't be able to support the MLK 50s and Harvey World Heroes across this country. And so I'm not trying to preach right now, but if funders are listening to this call, they need to make sure they replay it because we are missing people like Wendy Thomas and Amethyst Davis, especially Amethyst Davis at the point in the path that she's currently at. We cannot let these kind of people and these organizations slip through the cracks. So please, let's not continue to replicate a system that does not work for all of us. Communities like Wendy's and Amethyst not only deserve, not only need and want credible news and information, they deserve it. And with that, I say thank you. And please join us next time.